Matthew 27. And we'll begin our reading in verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See it to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be upon us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's quarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him, and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink of it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among him by casting lots. When they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Thus says the word of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Can our eyes behold such a tragic and horrific situation that unfolds here in the scriptures as the the killing of the innocent one for the salvation of the guilty? Father, purge our eyes that we could see and behold our Savior in all of his beauty, in all of his purity and innocence, his blamelessness, Let our hearts not be mocking either by indifference or by rejection this morning of your word. For we come to you in the living word today. We pray that the preaching of the cross will become wisdom for us who have believed upon him. Pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. The title of the message this morning is The Savior and the Shame. The Savior and the Shame. And the passage that we're really looking at this morning is really from the calling of Simon to help carry the cross all the way into the mocking that it took place in verse 44. So verses 32 to 44 is the text of our message this morning. Shame. Shame. It's a major theme in the scriptures and it describes the human condition ever since the garden. It is something that people of every period of time have sought to shake off. Whole religions, movements, and accomplishments have been contrived in order to shed the feeling and the reality of shame. From paupers to princes, shame is no respecter of persons. Shame entered into the world when sin did. It arrives moments after that crucial decision that Adam and Eve made to reject God's goodness and make a way of pleasure for themselves. Shame was there. Naked, Adam and Eve stood now beholding one another in contempt. Now they would see each other as less. But when God would speak to them, they would feel ultimate shame. They had held God in contempt. They had been ashamed that He was their God and was holding back something that appeared to be very good for them. They wore shame before they wore the fig leaves. It was tailor-made for them. And you know, something about shame is it's always personal. It's deeply personal, isn't it? It is personal because it is the very result of holding God in contempt. It is part of the ultimate sin of denial of God's goodness. It is a deadly condition. One man said in his book called Crooked Kingdom, Lee Bardigu said, We can endure all kinds of pain. It's shame that eats men whole. Another said the difference between guilt and shame is very clear. We feel guilty for what we do. We feel shame for what we are. And really there's only one who can remove shame. He would need to fit it to himself. He would need to wear it like Adam and Eve would wear the fig leaves and like you and I wear shame. It would have to become his robes. He would have to own it. That is, he would have to take it away from us and wear it in our place. Shame. And that's where we find Jesus, beginning in verse 32. Wearing shame. We find Jesus in Matthew's Gospel here, and that's where we find ourselves too. We find ourselves in this passage. And so this morning we're going to be looking at dividing this passage into just two sections and looking at some truths that help us understand our Savior and the shame. And the first point this morning, and by the way, if you have a bulletin on the back side, is some ways to look at this and some just suggesting truths that would help us as we look into this passage together. But the first part of the structure of this passage is the suffering ascent. The suffering ascent. And right away, beginning in this passage here, we find Matthew drawing our attention to one more name before the end of his book. One more name. Not much is known of Simon, but we know that he's from Cyrene. Cyrene is the region of Libya there in northern Africa. 
It is directly across the Mediterranean Sea from Greece. And there was a, a good number of Jews who lived in, in Libya. It was known as Cyrene at the time. Uh, it was his name, Simon, was also shared by, you know, Simon Peter. It was a Jewish name. It also was a Greek name. So little is known about Simon. Mark seems to allude to some family connection. It's possible that Simon became a believer following this, uh, as we have some other family names involved um, in the scriptures later on in the Gospels and also through the Apostle Paul. But we're none, we don't know for sure, but it it's, could be that Simon became a believer following the resurrection. But Mark had said that he had come from his own country. We don't know exactly why he's in Jerusalem. We do know it's the Passover. Likely he's there to celebrate it. Simon reminds us that as one who's standing by the, the path of crucifixion for Christ, that often we don't get to choose our own means of suffering, our own timing of suffering. No doubt everybody sitting here this morning has come to that, that drastic reality that we have not been able to choose the timing or the means of our suffering. Simon is yet, yet another lesson of this. He was compelled by the soldiers there that, that he would care, help carry the cross of Jesus. Jesus had grown faltering underneath the weight of the cross and the soldiers were concerned that Jesus might fall and fail before getting to the execution point there on the top of the mountain. And so they wanted to prolong his agony, in a sense, prolong his life so that he would die on the cross at the top of the mountain rather than on the way to the cross. You see, they were experts at torture. And so if it would mean compelling someone else to help carry the cross, that was what they would call Simon to do. We don't know what had made him stand out from the crowd but he was compelled to carry the cross. But I'd like to just suggest something. This is merely a suggestion, but could this also be that God in His mercy, although it does not seem at first glance to be merciful, that it was God in His mercy who is helping Jesus in His weakness continue in His mission to go all the way to the end of the obedience to death on the cross. Just like the angel had ministered to Jesus in the garden when he was sweating great drops of blood and in agony unto death, we had learned from Matthew's Gospel even that Jesus was so sick even unto death in his intercession and in his pleading with the Father in the garden. So too could this have been another merciful messenger that God had sent to help Jesus continue on the mission that he had sent Jesus to do. But the second part of this ascent to suffering also is recognized in the place of the skull. As Jesus was led out of the city gates from Pilate and from the crowd's audience, Jesus was led outside of the gates of Jerusalem. It was necessary that someone who would die in such a manner would be disowned by the people. And the crucifixion of Jesus and really the, the public execution of criminals was to display you are no longer, especially if you're a Jew, you are no longer a Jew. We are, we are showing you are never one of us. And so too, the Roman Empire was also saying you also weren't one of us either. And so you were really executed outside of, if you would think of it this way, the picture was outside of humanity. You no longer really deserve to be recognized as a member of the human race. You have no people. And so Jesus was 
crucified outside the gates that was outside of humanity. Historians estimate that more than 30,000 crucifixions were administered during the rule of the Roman Empire. That's a significant number, but the Romans were not the ones who had invented this cruel way of execution. They had learned it from the Greeks, who had learned it from the Carthaginians, who had developed this way of a slow and agonizing death. And it was meant to be a public display in order to deter evil, like a capital punishment. And it was meant to be this way in order to deter would-be criminals. Jesus was crucified on this place called the place of the skull, and it was likely Gordon's Calvary, Golgotha. Calvary, if you see churches name that, or if you hear that word used, it simply means it's a Latin word for the place of the skull, Golgotha. And he was crucified, they were crucified in this place, and this was alongside of a busy road. And so you see that many had passed by and mocked him. It was meant to be a thoroughfare, an execution alongside of the thoroughfare, so that many would behold, and many did. The passerbyers mocked him. Not only do we see Simon in the first part of his ascent, and we see the place of the skull, but we see a splintered cross. And there are many thoughts about the gall that was placed before him. And in verse number 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. Some had thought that this would be a mocking of him, for this wouldn't help him at all. Other historians and scholars believe that this wine mixed with gall was sort of an analgesic, which was meant to at least add just a tiny bit of the numbing of the pain against, in a way, to extend the agony all the way through death on the cross. And Matthew records that once Jesus had tasted it, he turned it away. Jesus rejected it. But you know, none of the gospel writers, not Matthew, not Mark, not Luke, and not John, in their accounts of the crucifixion, Um, tell of any nails piercing the hands and feet of Jesus. Matthew here even just says, and they crucified him. They crucified him. That's the word he uses. He doesn't go into great lengths of saying what we see, have seen likely in movies on, on our TV screen, of all of the steps of crucifixion, But none of the Gospel writers actually include that he was nailed to the cross. Where do we come up with that? Well, we know that history does record that, but we do come up with that in in the Gospels where Thomas says, remember what Thomas says? Unless I see the piercings in his hands and feet and the wound on his side, I will not believe that he is my Savior. And so that's where we come... And so they did. They nailed Jesus to a cross, crossed his feet and put up his hands on the crossbars and nailed his human flesh to this cross. Sometimes men were bound, tied and bound to the cross. It is apparent that Jesus was forced then to lay down on the, the main beam of the cross, the splintered beams, and then was nailed, fixed to the cross, not to come off of it by his own power. And then the soldiers would lift this heavy cross and would thrust it into the hole that had already been prepared for other crucifixions into the ground. And Jesus went up but came crashing down. He was high yet very low. Simon, the skull and the splintered cross all tell of a sovereign setup 
for our salvation. It was a suffering ascent. And it was also a descent into suffering. Jesus suffered descent. So the second part of this passage I want us to look at is that there was a suffering descent. Notice that Matthew brings us again across so many types of people and what they are doing. We see that some are watching him die. They sat down, verse number 36. The soldiers sat down and kept watch over him there. They had nothing else to do. They had seen men die before. And there the soldiers, hardened by battle and hardened of heart, would gamble at a dead man, a dying man's robes. There they would watch him die. So we see the soldiers. They divide his garments, adding shame to him. They had stripped him of his robes, of his, out, of his outward robes, and now he is near naked, if not naked, and loses all of his dignity. And as we had read this morning in Psalm 22:18, they divided their garments, my garments among them, and cast lots. Here we see a human being with no dignity. They posted a mocking sign above his head, written, as we are told, in three languages, in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, Jesus, King of the Jews. The religious leaders wanted to change the wording of that and say, instead say, He said He was King of the Jews. But in a, in a stroke of mockery, Pilate said, No, let it be done. He's your King. Jesus, King of the Jews. And surely, with, with jeering eyes, mocking tongues, the soldiers also joined in this hilarity of this inscription Jesus, King of the Jews. This wasn't the picture that we were given of Jesus at the beginning of Matthew's book, is it? Matthew records in Matthew chapter 2 that kings came from far away. Kings came from far away and brought to this Jesus gifts of gold, of frankincense and myrrh, kneeling before him, reckoning unto him his true name, he is Jesus. He has come to deliver his people. Now Matthew writes in chapter 27, 25 chapters later on his scroll. Here is the king that I was telling you about. And he doesn't look much like a king. Wearing a crown of thorns, signs made out of wood above his head. Now in the lowest position of humanity, scoffed by everybody, betrayed, left abandoned by his own followers, Matthew says to you and I as the reader, remember, we don't know what's coming yet. We're first-time readers. Here's your king. The jeering crowd of passers-by, people looking upon him, considering him, one of the numbered of many criminals they had seen before on the cross. And here it was, the Passover, a million, a million plus people flooding the city, the time of greatest population of shame. The religious leaders scoff. They deride him, saying, notice in verse number 41, the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. 
and the criminals mock him. Notice in verse number 44, Matthew says, the criminals, the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Matthew is saying, even the lowest dregs of society had contempt for Jesus. Do you see the picture there? Can anybody go further down? Can anybody anybody look so sinful? Like such like such a lost person without hope than our Savior Jesus Christ. Matthew shows us that Jesus went up and then he went way, way down. Nobody was lower than Jesus on the cross. Nobody has ever lived on this earth lower than Jesus on the cross. You may have come from a background, you may have a story behind you that says that that you have failed, you've miserably failed, you've destroyed your life and you've destroyed many lives, even of people who you love, but nobody has ever gone lower than Jesus Christ. No matter who you are, Jesus has gone lower than you. One of the most hateful things someone can do to you is to consider you a non-person, to not acknowledge your existence. In many ways, we would rather have someone reject us outwardly, to to tell us off, to to be angry towards us, at least that validates our existence, but to, in a common term used today, to ghost us or to to give us the silent treatment, to, to make us feel like we aren't even relevant in their life anymore. This was the disparaging actions of the world towards Jesus. There was no relevance for Jesus. They said they would believe in him if he came down from the cross. But we believe upon him because he did. He did come down from the cross. He went into a tomb and he rose from the grave. And he rose from the grave and that's why we believe in him. But they did not believe in him when he rose from the grave. He did something greater than come down from the cross, did he not? He did something of rising from the grave. And this testimony is the stumbling block of which every person in the world needs to come across when they behold the faith of the biblical Christianity. And that is that we do not believe in a Jesus who saved himself. We believe in a Jesus who saved us. We believe in a Jesus who didn't come down from the cross, but a Jesus who came out of the tomb. And the empty tomb is our hope. Not only the occupied cross, and that brings us to the second part of our understanding of the suffering descent, and that is that it is not only did they heap shame upon Christ, but they despised there was a despising of the shame of Christ. What do we mean when we say that there was shame on Christ? When we're speaking coming back to this theme of shame. What did Jesus have to do with shame? Did Jesus give in to it? Did Jesus succumb to shame? Did Jesus outright reject the shame? Did Jesus fall into self-pity because of the shame that was put on him? With Psalm 22, for example, a moment of, of Jesus having pity upon himself in shame and asking others to pity him? What did Jesus do with the shame that was heaped upon him by the soldiers? What did Jesus do with the shame that was slung at him from the, the, the thoroughfare near the crosses of the crowds who were passing by, seeing his number, not knowing his name, but seeing his name on the sign above his head as one who thought he was the king of the Jews? 
What did Jesus do with the shame that was, that was poured on him like anointing oil from the priests themselves and the elders and the scribes? What did Jesus do with the shame that came from the cutting words of two of the dregs of society crucified like He was there on Calvary of the two thieves who reviled Him? What did Jesus do with the shame? The writer of Hebrews reminds us. The writer of Hebrews says that He despised the shame. For for the joy that was set before Him despised the shame. Not only did Jesus endure suffering for our salvation, but He endured the shame of our sin. You see, it wasn't just a, an impersonal sin, an impersonal a weight of guilt that was placed upon Jesus' shoulders. It was the very personal and the very deeply intimate shame that Jesus wore of your sin, of my sin on the cross. He wore the shame. And the writer of Hebrews says he despised the shame. So what did Jesus do to the shame? Here's what he did. He did not let the disgrace of the, of the cross, he did not let the shame of the cross become a defeating obstacle so that he neglected what God had sent him to do. The word that the writer of Hebrews says he despised the shame doesn't mean he hated the shame. For all of us hate shame. But it actually has a better meaning, a better understanding of it. It means that he thought little of the shame in comparison to the reward of the Father's pleasure in our salvation. He thought little of the shame as if to say if there was a scale of shame and joy, he saw the joy as having the greater weight than the shame. And so he despised the shame because he was pursuing the joy of the Father's pleasure and knowing the reward of the salvation of a people that would be called unto him. The word despising is from a Greek word that defines it as thinking little or nothing of. It was like Jesus said, thinking nothing of it. I did it for the joy that was set before me for all those who would have faith in me and receive my gift of salvation. I would think little of this shame. Little of the mockery. Little of the reviling. Little of the indifference of the soldiers. Romans 5.5 5 speaks of shame and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Just after the beginning of this world, as we have said, Adam's race was plunged into the shame of sin. You and I were plunged into the, the shame of sin as we entered into, into this world and every attempt has been made to cover the shame of our sinfulness. You and I have tried many things. But there would need to be one who would remove the shame of sin once and for all. He would scorn shame and pursue the joy of obedient sacrifice which would remove shame. The songwriters of the church in ages past weren't just trite Christians. They were deep theologians. Philip Bliss, the songwriter of over 300 songs in the Christian hymnal, wrote a song in, in around 1851 named Man of Sorrows, sometimes titled Hallelujah, What a Savior, or multiple titles. The first and second verse read like this, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim, Hallelujah, what a Savior. But when Philip Bliss considered what took place on the cross there at Calvary, he recognized that there was more than 
there was more than sin and cloaking all of sin was a note of shame and Jesus bore it, bearing shame and scoffing root. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. And then he invites us all and says, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience when he wrote his gospel. And he was, in in essence, saying, the one that we preach to you was crucified and died the most shameful death there could be. He has become the father of our religion, Matthew tells the people. The father of our religion is this one who hung on the cross. He has become for us the author of our faith. No one could have made up this type of story about the hero of their faith. This isn't flattering to see that this one who kings had bowed down to traveling hundreds, maybe thousand miles to come to a manger in Bethlehem from the east offering to him gifts fitted for a king. The genealogy proving his Davidic dynasty in Matthew chapter 1 and all along we have seen the power and authority of this king. We have heard the very words of Jesus saying to Pilate and even to Caiaphas, I have a kingdom not of this world and you would not have any authority had it not been given to you first of all by me. And he shows authority over death and he shows authority over diseases and he shows authority, ultimate authority, like in Mark chapter 2 when Jesus raises the young man from his bed who could not walk and says, Son, thy sins are forgiven you. Jesus shows that I am not only heaven, not only king of earth, but I am king of heaven. This is the king. But nobody writes a story of a king on a cross. This doesn't speak well about a religion. But you see, Jesus was Adam's descendant. He was also David's descendant. And Matthew started out his book telling us that he was David's descendant. And no king of Israel wore more shame than David did at very low times of his rule. This dynasty of David marked by treacherous idolatry Willful rejection of God's commands, selfishness, even leading to murder and adultery and arrogance. This was the family that God had sent his son into. David's family. This was the race that God sent his son to be in. Adam's race. David's family wore shame like Adam did in the garden. And we wear shame for all of our sin like they did. And our first instincts with shame are to go to the tailor's table and sew together fig leaves. You've done it many times. You've sought to cover your shame, to appease shame and guilt. And this handiwork in our lives looks like this. At least in five ways, we sew together the fig leaves to cover our shame. And the first looks like this, that we pretend at first to have never done anything. Like when Adam, when God finds him, says, where are you? And Adam sort of responds in a way, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm just around. What What do you want with me? And we pretend like nothing took place. 
Or maybe we turn towards self-indulgence and we drown or eat our way out of guilt. We, we look to ways in which we can distract even our bodies from the feeling that our soul starts gnawing at our minds. Or maybe we have other, look for and find other ways of physical distraction from our soul's agony. Maybe we try to overcompensate. We try to provide compensation. That is, we pile on kind and good deeds to counterbalance the wrong deeds. We try to make up for what we had done to cover our shame. We put together the scenes of compensation try to cover our shame. Maybe we try to just sing louder at church. Roll down the windows and turn the radio just a little bit louder to try to drown out the sound of our shame. We try to worship harder. Try to become more earnest. We try to perceive of ourselves as becoming more humble. But all of these, all of these are still at man's tailor's table. And they're like fig leaves. And God sees right through them. And by the way, that's really good news. At first glance, we don't want to be naked and exposed of soul before our God. It's terrifying and horrifying that we would be so before our holy God and what will he do to us but you see, unless God uncovers us from our own fig leaves, he cannot cover us with his own sacrifice. Unless God exposes us, God cannot embrace us. And it was by God's mercy where he approached Adam in Genesis chapter 3. It was God's mercy that asked the questions and exposed their nakedness and their sin. It was God's mercy and God's word has that effect upon us where God says, listen, you need to drop these fig leaves because until you do, none of these are ever going to help you. They're never going to take care of the, of the deeper part of your shame. And you and I both know it's still there. And so God mercifully says, let go of these leaves. And there's a multitude of patterns out there for, for the, the fig leaves of our shame. There's more than just these five. And from the garden to Westerville, Ohio, from the first people to you, to you and I, from the first days of the earth to 2022, the patterns of shame, shame's covering have been handed down like family treasures and heirlooms. We've learned it from our parents and we've learned it from each other. These different patterns to cover our shame. Some of us have even been self-taught in the cunningness and devices of our own sinfulness and deceit, deceived mind. We've made our own patterns. We didn't need anybody to tell us how to make fig leaf cloaks. But we've all learned how to try to cover our shame. And yet exactly like Adam and Eve... We are failures even at that. We need a covering for our shame that isn't man-made. Man's coverings can't cover the most exposed area of our lives. 
somehow we have been deceived and we deceive ourselves into believing that the most exposed, the most visible part of who we are is what you see. But that's not all of who we are. It's a fraction. It's a robe. For we are created in the image of God, firstly as, an, as a spiritual being, and we are firstly before a God, someone who has an accountability before Him. And whether it's missing a limb, or being overweight, or underweight, or having gray hair, or no hair, none of that is a covering for who we are. And none of it really is who we are. Praise be to God. But only God can provide the full covering for the shame-ridden soul. Only God can take away the shame and guilt from the tortured human heart. And that is where we find God. We find God in Jesus Christ here in Matthew 27, outside the city, outside the garden. We find God in Christ putting on all of our shame the mocking from the passers-by, the ridicule from the religious leaders, the reviling of the, of the thieves on the cross, the indifference and some of the mockery of the soldiers. We find Jesus wearing all of it. Peter says, who being reviled, reviled yet not again. What was Jesus doing? He was, he, he was receiving the heaping of shame for our sins. And for the joy that was set before him, he thought little of it. Because greater was his pleasure, so great was his pleasure to continue to complete the mission of which he had come to do. That it paled in comparison the suffering, yes, physically, and yes, even in shame. It paled in comparison to the joy that was set before him. Jesus puts it on. And so great was our shame, but even greater was his joy in comparison. Jesus despised the shame for the joy of pleasing the Father and bringing many sons to glory. This morning, as believers, as we respond to this, as the Word of God speaks to us in our condition, we are called unto understanding that the justification for our salvation has been so deeply calculated by our great and merciful God that even looking upon the shame of our sin, He would wear that. He took a full reckoning, a full accounting of every part of our sinful condition and for the joy that was set before Him, He accomplished, he accomplished this sacrifice. We are so fully justified by the works of Jesus Christ. There was not one part, one angle, one part of sin that was left unaccounted for as Jesus drained his blood on the cross. So if you have come to believe as a Christian that you have, that you have been sidelined by God, if you have come to believe as a Christian that you have so seriously messed up in your walk with Christ, if you have come to believe as a Christian that shame is your story, Matthew says, 
here. Stop and behold, Jesus wore it all the way back then. He knew. And he still went all the way. He was well acquainted with our griefs and sorrows. If you're here today and you do not know this one, this Jesus, who is the Son of God, who came into this world, and this story has sound very religious, and you've heard it many times, perhaps, or you've seen its symbols or heard preaching on this, but you would never have really looked upon Christ in faith. And turning away from your shame, believed that his punishment could pay it all, that his punishment would suffice to assuage, to, to be the substitute for your judgment before a holy God. This morning, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and Matthew's faithful testimony of the Son of God compel you to consider what great lengths Christ has done. For no one has gone lower than Him, not even you. And He offers Himself to you today. Let's pray together.